Well, good evening. I'm going to be working from the book of Romans this evening, so you might like to turn to um, the book of Romans. If you're using the Bible that's in the pew in front of you, uh, it'll be on page 1128. And we have been working our way through the life and story of David for quite some time, and we arrived at David's death um, last week. And over the next couple of weeks, I'd like to return to a series of four uh, themes and sermons which um, I have preached from time to time. When I came here, it was my intention to preach these four themes every 18 months. I've slipped up. I think it's well over two years uh, since I last addressed these four themes. And um, we're back to look at them again this evening and over the next three Sunday evenings, God willing. Um, They are four important doctrines. Um, that we need to keep revisiting to make sure we have a sense of who we are and where we stand in our relationship with God. If you want the terms or the names of the doctrines, the first one is justification, the second one is sanctification, the third one is the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the fourth one is adoption. But I'm not going to be using that terminology over the four Sunday evenings. I want to think about issues uh, in a slightly different way. Tonight's is, I am accepted. Uh, Next week's is, I am delivered. The third one is, I am not alone. And the fourth one is, I belong. So over the next four Sunday nights, uh, we're going to look at these uh, four themes and revisit um, sermons, which if you've been around the church the length of time I've been around the church, which is not true of all that many of us here, this, I don't know what time, this could be your fourth time to hear these particular uh, themes preached on in a very similar kind of way. But the reason behind it is simply that they are such key issues and to be able to address them in a relatively short space of time can be very helpful in just bringing us back to some of the basics. Um, So this evening my theme is I am accepted. When I've finished I'm going to be leaving. It's nothing personal. I'm going to join Clay um, afterwards so don't worry I'm not ill and you're not awful. Um, It would be great if we could assume that everyone in church was a confident Christian. Are you? Are you sure that God loves you? Are you sure that God will keep on loving you? Are you sure that there's no limit to his patience? Are you sure that you're as acceptable as other Christians? And does that matter? Does The thing that's happening to you and the things that happen to you at this time, whatever they might be, the difficulties or illness or trouble, does it indicate that God no longer loves you? If he ever did. How do I know that God accepts me? How can I be sure that what I've done wrong has actually been forgiven and it won't be held against me at the last moment? The uncertainty about being accepted can be seriously debilitating for us as human beings. The certainty of God's love for us and acceptance of us is one of the most important things we can consider. When we don't have that confidence, it can lead to a life of perpetual fear. Fear of rejection. And for some, that means they live a life of spiritual performance, always trying to strive to be spiritual in the hope that God will accept them. Religion essentially becomes almost like a kind of superstition. For some, it leads to a life of anger. 
a life of anger at a God who needs to be appeased because they're never really quite sure whether he is accepting of them. For some, it leads to despair. And they just give up. The Bible addresses this issue of acceptance, and that's what I want us to think about for a while under the general heading of, I am accepted. First of all, what I want to say is that the Bible makes it clear that we are actually unacceptable. Some people complain that the Bible is a bit of a rip-off. I read one journalist who was speaking about this and he made the point that uh, out of his own experiences and bad experiences of church, he believed that basically the way the Christian faith worked and what it was all about was to put you down so that it can falsely claim to lift you up. But what the Bible offers is an honest appraisal of our humanity and who we are as human beings. Would you rather be lied to because it makes you feel better? Or would you rather have the truth and then you can deal with the situation? One of the important passages in scripture that deals with this whole theme is Romans chapter 1 through to Romans chapter 3 and beyond. Just like today, many of the people that Paul was writing to came from backgrounds which had no direct experience of Christian faith. And very little sense of the concept of sin uh, or even a sense of what was immoral or wrong. And Paul starts by explaining about the nature of sin and about the fact that actually as human beings, the truth is we are unacceptable before God. He explains in chapter 1, for example, in verses 23 and 25, how instead of worshipping the glorious ever-living God, they worshipped idols made to look like mere people or birds or animals or snakes. They worshipped things God made but not the Creator himself who is to be praised forever. And Paul points out that human sinfulness knows no racial or political or national distinction. We're actually all the same. He asks the question later on, are Jews better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is good, not even one. No one has real understanding. No one is seeking God. So the Bible deals with the reality of our human condition. Impartially. I know there are many good things in our world. Many, many times people do good things for other people. But the terrible reality is that there are many bad things in our world that need to be accounted for. The terrible truth is that even people who do good things have the capacity to do or to think very bad things and very selfish things. We can place people on a scale of human niceness or decency easily enough. We can score them high or score them low on the scale of human decency. But we know that if we try to put any person somewhere on the scale of God's holiness or righteousness or justice, we don't begin to register. There's no comparison. Measured against our fellow human beings, some people come out like angels. Measured against God and his beauty and his purity, we don't begin to compare. So the biblical teaching on sin and what it is as rebellion against God and not simply little things that we do wrong or big things that we do wrong tells us why we are in the mess that we're in. It explains to us actually why the world is in the state it's in, why the rich oppress the poor, why the poor oppress those poorer than themselves. It explains to us why people hate each other for things previous generations were responsible It tells us why the strong oppresses the weak and the weak are capable of finding someone weaker to oppress. 
It explains human sinfulness. We have replaced God with our own gods. We have worshipped the created things rather than the creator. And we are unacceptable. But the second thing is that the Bible tells us that God has made our acceptance possible. I don't know why so many people who oppose Christianity ignore this whole thread of Christian teaching. Before the Bible ever mentions sin, it tells us that we were created for great things. It doesn't put us down at the very beginning. It speaks about how we were made in the image of God. How perfect, beautiful, how exciting we were. It tells us the truth about what we have done with that in our human sinfulness and fallenness. But then it goes on to tell us that there is also good news. And this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. It's accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. If you turn over to Romans chapter 3 and look at what it says in verses 21 to 25. Let me read them to you. It's page 1131. Paul says, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Those verses, 21 to 25 of Romans chapter 3, set out how the gospel actually works. Verse 21, God has shown us a way of being made right in his sight. Verse 22 explains we're made right in his sight when we trust in Jesus Christ to take away our sins. And we can all be saved in the same way, no matter who we are or what we have done. And verse 23 reiterates his basic point. All have sinned. All fall short of God's glorious standard. And verses 24 and 25 get into the mechanics of how it is God makes it possible for us to be forgiven and put right with him. God in his gracious kindness declares us not guilty. He's done it through Jesus Christ who freed us by taking away our sins. God sent Jesus to bear the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's just anger against us. And we're made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed his blood sacrificing his life for us. A little later on in verse 27, Paul asks a fairly obvious question. He says, where is boasting? Can we boast that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, we can't. Because our acquittal is not based on our good deeds. It's based on our faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not the good things that we do. What can I do to make sure God accepts me? Nothing. I am by choice and by nature a sinner who falls short of God's glorious standards. The good that I do is mixed with selfishness, pride and a host of other anti-God motives and attitudes. But anyway... It's the wrong question. The Bible is telling me that God loves me and made my acceptance possible even though I am a sinner. John tells us in his letter how God's love is affirmed for us in Jesus Christ. This is real love, he says. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What puts us right with God? 
What assures us of our acceptance before God is not what we do to make God love us, but whether we place our faith in what God, out of his love for us, has done to restore the relationship. If we put our faith in what Jesus did on the cross, do we see and believe that what Jesus did for us was all that was necessary for our salvation? Do we see and believe that what is offered to us in a new relationship with God is offered freely and out of pure divine love? All that was necessary for me to be accepted by God was done not by me or in my lifetime, but was done at the cross when Jesus bore the burden and penalty for my sins and was able to cry, it is finished. The third thing I want to think about for a minute or two is what does it mean to live in the light of God's acceptance? If I can say I am accepted because my faith is placed in Jesus Christ, not because of what I do, but because of what he did for me at the cross, what difference does that make to our lives? Well, it makes a difference in at least two ways. It allows us to live with confidence before God and it challenges us to live graciously. First of all, to think about that, allowing us to live with confidence before God. I've often observed people struggle with the notion that they are accepted. I think that's why accepting people at face value is important in church life. Sometimes you get ripped off, but that's okay. Because modeling acceptance is more important than worrying about having egg on our faces. But Paul Tillich, a writer about these things, put it very well. He said, the most difficult thing about being a Christian is accepting the fact that I am accepted even though I find myself to be unacceptable. I'll repeat that. The most difficult thing about being a Christian is accepting the fact that I am accepted even though I find myself to be unacceptable. The more he read scripture, the more he realized that before a holy, just and loving God, he is a sinner. The more he recognizes that he is a sinner, the more amazing it is that he is accepted. And that's what he's saying. Who hasn't struggled with the concept of acceptance before God? As we've learned more of our capacity in our own hearts for evil, for immorality, for its shame. Understanding the basis on which we're accepted by God through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus at the cross lies at the heart of a healthy self-understanding and a healthy Christian lifestyle. Many years ago, um, a writer called John White Addressing this issue, put it this way, he said, Most evangelicals unconsciously assume that God's loving acceptance of them depends on their post-conversion spiritual performance rather than on the perfect sacrifice on their behalf by the Son of Man. They know the theory of justification, but they derive no spiritual comfort from it. It's all too common. Philip Yancey, in What's So Amazing About Grace?, Quotes David Siemens, a counsellor, who says, Many years ago I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. The failure to understand, receive and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. And the failure to give that unconditional love, forgiveness and grace to other people. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace but that's not the way we live. 
The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated to the level of our emotions. Computer programs have some very useful things like default settings. I had a printer one time, printers are much better now than they used to be, which had one. I didn't really need to tell it uh, how I wanted things done. I set a default mechanism and it ran according to that default unless I gave it new instructions. And the whole idea of computer programs having default settings and, and, and hardware having default settings I think is quite a useful thing to think about. We have default settings. They're not always helpful. We have a default setting towards sin and rebellion against God. That's our default position. That's where we'll go when it suits us. We have a default setting to fear. The fear that we are not really loved by God as he says we are. Like Adam and Eve hearing the voice which says, If God is this good, he couldn't possibly love you. You and I know your little secrets, don't we? Well, to change my printer's instructions, I've got to go in and I've got to change the settings. And the same is true in my head and in my heart as a Christian. The default settings need to be changed. They need to be changed from legalism to grace. From defeatism to victory through Jesus Christ. From assuming rejection to assuming acceptance by God. From discouragement to excitement. And what happens if those aren't reset? What happens if I can't accept this loving acceptance of God? Well then I could very easily end up living a lie. I pretend it, I sing the songs, I sing the hymns, but it doesn't strengthen my soul. It doesn't nourish me. Or I resolve my inner struggles by becoming insufferably self-righteous and making sure everyone knows about my righteousness because I'm really so insecure. Or even more commonly, I simply become apathetic. I become discouraged. And I live with a front on, a mask of meaningless praise, words and actions. Understanding the basis of God's acceptance, what Jesus has done for us on the cross, allows us to begin to live with confidence. And the default settings in our heads need to be changed when our faith and trust is placed in Jesus Christ. In what other ways does understanding the basis of God's acceptance help us? Well, I think the second thing I want to say about this is that it challenges us to live by the rules of grace. When you come to part two of the book of Romans, you see how this is supposed to work out. If you flick over to chapter 12, after Paul has uh, unpacked all the way in which the gospel works, he gets down to the practical application of it, if you like. The first 12 chapters are really exposition and explanation of the nature of the gospel and how it works. And Romans 12 is the beginning of the section that deals with living out the grace we have received. It's interesting, it begins with the mind and the body. The body to be offered in service and the mind to be renewed to conform not to the world but to the word. The default settings need to be changed. Therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And look how it proceeds. Verse 3 begins to address the issue of honest self-appraisal and honest self-evaluation. Verse 6 of chapter 12 takes us into the whole theme of serving others and the outworking of this grace. 
Verse 9 takes us into the challenge of loving other people as Christ has loved us. Verses 12 to 14 give us advice on how we live and deal with difficulties. Chapter 13, as you go into it, addresses the issues of what it means to be a citizen and a Christian. Verse 14 of chapter 13 on talks about clothing ourselves with Christ and a transformation of our morality and the way in which we think and live. And chapter 14 is all about considering the weak and living in peace with each other. Peter lifts the same theme in fewer words than Paul does. In 1 Peter 4 verse 10 he says this, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. The principle is simply this. Having received that grace of God, you share it with others. We do not serve God in the hope to be accepted by God. That will not work. Acceptance is the basis on which we serve God, accepted because of our faith in Christ. Serving God is not a guarantee of acceptance. Serving God is the grateful thanks for the guarantee of acceptance because of what was done at the cross. Yancey, in another part of his book, sets out the implications of the cross and he comments, The world runs by ungrace. Everything depends on what I do. Jesus' kingdom calls us to another way. One that depends not on our own performance, but on his. We do not have to achieve. We are called to follow. He has already earned for us the costly victory of God's acceptance. And then he asks the question, which resembles my spiritual life, ungrace or grace? How can I claim to know that acceptance of me as a sinner, a rebel, an unsatisfactory human being, that acceptance that God extends to me by faith in Christ, if I'm not willing to make it possible for other unsatisfactory human beings to be accepted in the church, in my circle of friends or fellowship, and be willing to serve them in Jesus' name? Yes, the truth is we are unacceptable. But God has made our acceptance possible. God's acceptance of us through the atoning death of Jesus transforms our lives and our living. And in just a moment, you're going to have the opportunity to share together in bread and wine as a kind of practical outworking of this whole theme. And as you share in the bread and as you share in the wine, the challenge is to say to yourself, I am accepted. Because that's what this bread and wine represents. The basis on which God wants you to have the confidence to say, because my faith is in Christ, I am accepted.